Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another BitFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and I'm pleased to have Kayla Nijanese on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. It is absolutely my pleasure. Uh, we are we have come together to talk about your epic documentary, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, which uh, hit Shudder. Was it this year? I think it was... When, when, when did it hit Shudder? <laughs> I can't remember now whether it was, it's all been a blur really since it came out. It was out, it, came, it premiered in like March of 21 and it may have hit Shutter actually in the fall. No, no, it was like January of this year, I think. But what we can say to people listening, it is available to watch now on Shutter. Yes. That is without a shadow yes, of a doubt. And I, and I think they have a whole bunch of the folk horror movies that are in the documentary on Shutter as well. I noticed, so. yes. Yeah. So, and what we're going to do after we've talked a little bit about that, about your documentary is we're going to, we're going to focus on five films that are featured in the documentary with you. But, but before we do that, and so people know what, what it's about, do you want to give a sort of brief description as to what Woodlands Day, Dark and Days Bewitched is? Uh, okay. It's like a three hour and 14 minute documentary about, uh, I guess I would say, you know, the his it's advertises like the history of folk horror, but I would actually say it's almost more like a critical exploration of folk horror, mm. um, sort of, uh, you know, beginning with the Holy Trinity of folk horror, which is like Blood on Satan's Claw, Witchfinder General and the Wicker Man, and then kind of branching out from there and, and you know, questioning a lot about uh how people define folk horror, how people mm. in different cultures define folk horror, you know, and what it means when it's under different political systems and different cultural systems and stuff like that. And just kind of like, you know, starting with a very firm beginning of like British folk horror and going through all the kind of British folk horror classics from film and television, and then being like, okay, going out from there, like, what does it look like in the rest of the world, you know? And then kind of in the end questioning like why, why are we so interested? Why is, why does this resonate? Why does it resonate now specifically? Um, and it was interesting because when I first finished it, uh, obviously there were a lot of political things happening. Um, when I, when I was working on the documentary, but by the time I was finishing it, like the last year of editing, we were in COVID locked. So, I mean, it became even more resonant, I think, because of that, you know, because people started actually like moving out to the country again and started learning more about self-sustaining with, you know, home gardening and like all of these issues that were kind of coming up in the film related to like the 70s uh, interest in folk horror were all kind of coming back. because Literally Mother Earth was taking revenge on us. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Nature was coming back to us and sending us out to it all at the same time. It was quite an amazing thing, yeah. I would say, I mean, on a second watch of the of the of the film, I really, really sort of leaned into the sort of geopolitical side of it, which because the first time I watched it, I was like pad and paper, like trying to get and trying to keep up with the films you were throwing at us. Cause I was like, I've not seen that one. I've not seen that one. 
I actually gave up the first time <laughs> trying to trying to because it was like this is this is ridiculous. And I and I and I loved the fact that I mean I went in so cold. I mean this I don't know of other people's experiences going into cold. I was fully aware of the Holy Trinity, as it were. I'm thinking, how's she gonna get three hours out of this? And then the yeah. thing just opened the film just opens up into this massive story of folk storytelling mm-hmm. really around the world. And I can mm-hmm. I can only just congratulate on what you how, how much you how much the globe you managed to cover and what a big story folk horror is in a way. Yeah, it was really important to me to kind of get out from under this preconception a lot of people had that British that folk horror was British. You yeah. know, that it was a British thing, it was a British history in film, that all the examples were British and that anything that wasn't British was inspired by British films or relating back in some way to mm. uh british attitudes you know through uh through colonialism and stuff you know and uh and so as i started to look at what folk horror looks like from other perspectives uh you know like what if your starting point isn't british you know mm. what if your starting point is like you are an African-American person who lives in the South of the U S your entryway to folk horror might be very, very different. Absolutely. And that's what proved to be the case. Like when I was, when I wasn't done the film, but I was kind of like in the last year of editing it, we did a panel at the Fantasia film festival because the movie wasn't ready, but they thought folk horror was a hot topic. They wanted to do a panel about it and they asked me to curate it. And I had this one scholar named Kenitra Brooks Mm. who had written this excellent book called Searching for Sikorax. And in that book, she had a couple of chapters kind of focused on folk horror, but from a very different perspective that was very inspired by the writings of, and the, the ethnographic research of Zora Neale Hurston mm. and, uh, and the whole history of like the conjure woman and like all these things in like, you know, Appalachian and Southern U.S. Uh, mythology and spiritualities and stuff. And so I said something in our very first Zoom meeting about that panel when we were preparing for the panel. I said something like, okay, we're going to start with British folk horror because everything kind of starts there. And she was like, what's British folk horror? No. <laughs> and I was like, you know, like blah, blah, blah. And I started naming the movies. She's like, I never heard of any of those movies. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. And I was like, really? I was like, wow, this is okay. This is really exciting. Yeah, hold me. on to your hats. <laughs> And that was a big part of, she ended up being so busy, I couldn't actually get her in the movie. So she's in the panel and not the movie. But uh, but that was a real, it just showed me how much I was perpetuating that too, mm. you know, in conversation and stuff. And hearing her say that and just be like, I have no idea what you're talking about, what British folk are, you know, was amazing to me because I was like, yes, this, the movie has to have this, you know, it has to have, these other perspectives where it's like, it does not begin with British mm. folk horror for them, you know? And, um, and so, yeah, so then I started looking at the film when we started editing it, uh, each section of the film, because there's kind of like different chapters and each chapter is kind of has a different editing, um, mandate mm. in a way, you know, so the British section, somebody complained online. They're like, Oh, the British section is the least critical. And I was like, yeah, that's true, because part of what we're doing in that British signposts section, which is what, what it's called, signposts of British folk horror, is we're really giving you the greatest hits list in terms of like what everybody thinks is folk horror. You yeah. know, like when most people think of a folk horror, these are all the films that they're going to name, you know, because for most people, even most of the people I interviewed, you know, like a lot of them did come to it with this idea that it was kind of like a British thing first, you know? Mm. And so it was kind of like starting with that, like, okay, these are, these are your expectations. You know, this is everything that you expect from a folk horror movie. And then we're going to question that, you know? So it was kind of like the American section was very geographical, the way it was edited. Mm. It started with like the colonies and then it branched out throughout the U S according to a certain trajectory that took us through different areas of the U S so that we could investigate the ways that folk horror manifested in these different regions based on the immigration patterns of those places. And then when we got to the international section, 
which was definitely the most ambitious in its editing approach, was that we were actually trying to weave all the countries together in terms of like what imagery do folk horror films, like what themes and imagery and stuff do these films from totally different countries have in common? You mm. know, like in what in what ways are some of these things connecting like all around the world? And um, and some people, some viewers definitely found that section the most confusing because they were they were really they were expecting it to be geographical, where it's like one country, now another country, now another country, now another country, you know. And so the way that we would weave things in, I think people just were like, "Oh, this editing is so messy. Like, I don't understand this editing," you know. And then there's other people who were like, "You have all the Asian countries mixed together as though they're one thing," and it's like, "Well, it's not really about." Asian, it's more about we're just looking at different mythologies from different places and we're comparing them against each other. So we actually were trying to avoid a strictly geographical approach to the international section and have it be much more like abstract and No, I mean like- I must admit, one of the I mean, I know you've got talking heads in it, but for me, a lot of the similar there was a lot of similarities between how Andrew Curtis cuts his films together, in the sense it was like in some ways it's yeah. a meditation on folk horror as much as it is my, an investigation. My editor was very influenced by Adam Curtis. Okay, well, that, that makes sense then, yeah. yeah so, honestly. I mean, I, ha- I have certain things that I sort of brought saying that I want the editing to be like this. And for me, one of the movies, I think the first movie that I brought to her was a movie uh, called Double Take by Johan Grimmenprez, which okay. is like this um, kind of essay film, docu- hybrid documentary about what happens on the set of the birds when Alfred Hitchcock meets his double. Okay. And it's a really creepy movie that's also dealing with like, um, yeah, just like 9-11 and dealing with um, different po- interest. It's making like interesting political comparisons and stuff. it's a fascinating film, mm. but it has this real creepiness to it. It's just infused with this creepiness. And so I, that was like the first movie I told my editor, I was like, you got to watch this movie because even though my movie is a movie about something, I also want it to feel like that thing, oh. you know? No, I, I definitely, I mean, it definitely felt like I was being absorbed by the film, not watching the film as much as anything yeah. else, which was really exciting. And I think that's why in the second viewing, I was able to then lean into the, some of the details I hadn't been able to just pick up first time around. I mean, they obviously hit me, but there's a lot of information to consume yeah. in, in one sitting. Yeah. Um, now, I'm, I'm around, I'm, I'm, I spoke to David Gregory a long while ago while this film was in its kind of early days. We did five great British horror films. And funny enough, I stopped doing five great British horror films as a format because all I got was Blood on Satan's Claw, uh, Witch Fan of General, and uh, The Wicker Man. And there's only so many times I want to talk about, I mean, they're brilliant films. Yeah. There's only so many times I want to spend five minutes talking about them with people. So I ended up, I ended yeah. up just doing five of whatever anyone wants to do now. Um, but yeah. we were taught, we, he, he had Blood on Satan's Claw on his, he was one of the early ones I did it with, and he had Blood on Satan's Claw. And at the time, Severin were doing a special Blu-ray or something that you were doing a extra for, which was this documentary on folk horror. So what was the trigger then that went, hold on a minute, this isn't an extra. This is a film that should be standalone yeah. itself. What was the tipping point for you? Uh, I think, it, I mean, partially it was just that, like, I had started with a very small pool of people. Like, so I pr- had proposed doing this short thing. I was supposed to interview a maximum of six people. Oh my Next word. thing you know, I had, I had interviewed 10 or 12 people just yeah. for an extra, which is very unusual, you yeah. know, because most extras are just one person or two people, hmm. you know. So I'd interview like 12 people and I started cutting together this rough cut. It's supposed to be like half an hour long. And it was like two hours and 10 minutes long, the thing, my rough cut. So it's longer than Blood on Satan's Claw. Yeah, yeah. And I told David, I was just, you know, it was also my first time like writing, producing, editing, whatever, Mm. like a film on my own. Because even at Severin, up until that point, my job at Severin was just an editor. I was only an editor and only very basic. Like I, I was not given like complicated projects. I was mostly like one interview with a person and I have to edit it together and populate it with imagery. And David was the director. So I would be working off feedback from him. Mm. And so they were like assignments, you know, and I would be reporting to David. 
And then when this folk horror, when I proposed this folk horror thing, I wasn't even proposing it for myself to make it. I was just saying like, somebody should make this. And David was just like, oh, why just do it. And I was just like, just do it myself, like the whole thing myself. And he was like, yeah, sure. You know how to do it. Like, you know, all the right people, you should, the experts you should talk to or whatever. And I was just like, okay. I mean, I do. And I knew who some of our camera people were that we used in various places and stuff. And I was like, I mean, I guess technically I could do it myself, you know? So, um, but when, but it was the first thing, first like really complex thing I had edited with like 12 different people, you know, laying in like that. So I just didn't know how to cut it down at first. You know, it was like, I was like, everything is interesting to me. (laughs) I don't know what to cut out of this because it's all interesting. And, and what would happen every time I would interview someone is that they would mention something I hadn't thought of. And I'd be like, Oh, that's interesting. You know? So then I'd have to go off another tangent talking about that thing, you know? And so instead of getting smaller, it kept growing. And so when I handed in this rough cut, And I was just like, I do not know how to cut this down. You know, I just feel like this topic is, is bigger. You know, Uh, David was just like, well, don't cut it down. Then he was like, how about instead of cutting? I mean, obviously he wanted, he didn't want it to be two hours long, but he was just thinking like, you know, you, you have basically half of a feature film here, you know? So he was just like, instead of trying to think of ways to cut it, why don't you think of like, if you were hypothetically making a feature film about folk horror, who would, who, who would be your wish list of who needs to be in it and what you need to talk about? If you really were thinking like you were going to make a feature about Mm. folk horror, what would have to be in it? And I was just like, well, I would do this and this and this. And he'd be like, well, do those things then, you know? So I got like animation, I got like Guy Madden doing collages, I got Jim Williams doing music. Like I think some of those uh, artistic things were the first things I went after because I was like, well, I know it needs a score. I can't score it myself. I know it needs some kind of artistic flair or cinematic flair that I don't have. Uh, So it was like starting to get some animation done, getting the chapter headings done um, and you know, and then it came down to looking for an editor that had much more experience than me. You know, I was yeah. just like, if I was making a movie like this, I would not be the editor. I was like, <laughs> I would kind of make a rough assembly, but I would actually hire an editor who knew much more about cutting features than me, you know? So then David allowed me to hire another editor. And so I got, uh, originally a guy named Benjamin Shern. And then he ended up having like a back injury that took him where he couldn't sit at his desk, uh, you know, for like six months or something like that. And so that was when I, you know, started looking for another editor. And it took quite a while for me to find another editor that A, I liked as much as Ben, uh, but also who I felt I could have a rapport with, you know, because partially I'd never made a movie before. So I wasn't super professional in how I dealt with people. Okay. <laughs> I would just be like, Oh no, I hate that. Move this here do that. Like very like kind of brusque and whatever. So it takes a certain type of person I think, to be able to work with me because I was like, not the most diplomatic person. And so, so it really was kind of like, I wanted to find a person where I just felt like they got it already, mm. you know, where they were not a jack of all trades editor that I was going to try to direct in a certain way, but where they were just an editor where it's like, this is also the way they think. And this is also the way they look at things. And we are just similar in a certain way. And mm. then I just trust them, you know, to do things. And so that was how I eventually found Winnie Chung. And Winnie was not only a great editor, she totally got all this psychedelic shit that I wanted to do. I was like, I want the film to feel psychedelic, you know? And so she was like, yes, that sounds great to me. Um, But also she had way more experience making films than I did. So she ended up getting a producer credit on the movie because she ended up working out so much of the, like how the workflow should go, you know, in terms of like, if there's clips I want in the film, you know, making spreadsheets and having links and having all the information organized so that she and her assistant editor, because she also had an assistant editor named Jamie Lansdowne. And um, so that they would, you know, so anytime there was a still image or whatever, there was like really organized ways of letting them know where all the footage was stored and 
you know, what sections it's supposed to go in and all that stuff. So she helped a lot with like a lot of those organizational things that I didn't have experience in. And then David Gregory came on at the end, like for the last like two months, because he's the, he's a co-producer, but it was like, but it was kind of like, I did it all myself until the end when he came on, when we had to actually deliver the files and we had to make everything output in some professional way. that's like up to current industry standards and whatever he came in then is like, okay, this is how we need to do it. We need our post-production supervisor to get these files. We need this person to get these files. This person's, you know, so he kind of stepped in at that point and really brought it home, Mm. you know? Um, so yeah, so it was a really interesting process where I just was learning on the go. You know, I went from like having no clue how to do something like this to making like a three, you know, almost a three and a half hour long documentary that people didn't hate, which was my only hope was that it wasn't that people didn't like laugh at me and make fun of me. <laughs> it was done. You well, know, I suppose, like, yeah, you, you put, you put so much in it, then you kind of, that's, yeah. that's the, the very the least you want, the least you can hope to get in it, I suppose. Um, but it is, it, like, it, it is, it is an amazing piece of work, uh, and and it is three three hours and twelve minutes, which is which is a long, long time. I remember when I first came across, like Jesus, okay. And I did it in a wanna. I, I'll be honest with you, and I've done it with a wanna the second time. I've not. I don't break it up because I think it, it just it really does work as a piece of work. But I worked on a docu. I've only worked on one documentary from a kind of post point of view. And the you know the mantra was we need to get this to ninety minutes. It was like it wavered at two hours, and we need to get you know I think we compromised about one hour forty five or something. Mm-hmm. Presenting, produce you know David here's a three three hour documentary. Let's go. I mean, a what was it before it got to three hours twelve? Just for people, just as a pro, you know you've talked you've discussed like quite two, a lot. it was like two hours longer. Really? So I would say by the time Winnie's started editing it because there was like, I had made a rough, a rough cut, you know, rough assembly. I mean, it was a bit more detailed than an assembly. Like I had dropped everything, all the quotes in the order I wanted them. I had put clips in, like I'd done quite a bit of stuff, you know, so it was a bit more than an assembly, but, um, by the time, you know, Ben started working on it and he did basically the, the very intro he did the um, signposts of British folk horror and the unholy trinity. Mm. Uh, and I think signposts of British folk horror, he kind of did half of, and that was about the time he got injured. So when Winnie took over, it was like five and a half hours long. Like the, the, cause there was still all this other stuff that I had done yeah. that Ben had touched yet, you know? And uh, so it was like five and a half hours long. And, I knew that we weren't going to be able to get it down to 90 minutes. And I knew we probably weren't going to be able to get it under two hours. Yeah. 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 And you know, but I was sort of like three hours. I'm like three hours. I'm like, that seems like a good time for it to feel really comprehensive, but also not be like uh, impossible for people to watch, you know? And, but I was like, but that still leaves us with two hours that we have to cut out, you know? And Winnie was so great because she would cut out all kinds of shit and I just wouldn't even notice it was gone. You know, like there's <laughs> the best type, eh? There's stuff I notice now that's gone. Like um, in the sort of witchcraft and occult section, I had a whole little section about Alex and Maxine Sanders. Okay. Uh, who were the, like the British, um, oh my God, like Alexandrian witchcraft. And, um, and so she cut them out. And I didn't notice until the film was done. And I, in, in hindsight, if I had noticed, I would have been okay with it being cut, but then I would have wanted a picture at least of Alex and Maxine Sanders put in with the other occult people that are mentioned, because otherwise it makes it seem like I forgot them or I oh, don't I know about yeah, them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so I regret that I didn't notice it because I would have at least had some visual acknowledgement of them in there. Also Blair Witch, I had a little thing of like um, uh, uh, Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer talking about the Blair Witch Project and somehow that <laughs> I didn't notice. And so then nobody talks about the Blair Witch Project and people are like, how is the Blair Witch Project not mentioned in this movie? 
And I'm like, it was there. And I didn't notice it was gone. And then also I had things like, I had title cards put in for movies that I didn't want to get forgotten, mm. you know? So like at one point I remember putting the movie, The Hallow, like again and again, I kept putting insert the hallow, insert the hallow, just like a title card so that nobody would forget to insert the hallow. Of course, that didn't get put in. And um, so then all kinds of people after the movie came out are like, oh, have you seen this movie, The Hallow? It's great. I'm like, yes, I know. It was supposed to be in the movie and it got cut and I forgot or whatever. What you would you, can I ask um, you? What would you, because I asked this to a lot of documentary filmmakers, because I mean, and it sounds like the panel was one of the big revelations of what are these British films. But in terms of having done this exploration into folk horror, based on your perception going in, what for you was your favorite discovery about folk horror that you couldn't have imagined before you went on this journey? I mean, my, my favorite discovery was basically that there was this, this very clear distinction between two types of folk horror and that it was that, you know, and the reason why so many people associate folk horror with Britain um, was for this reason, you know, and it was that folk horror around the world folk horror in like countries that are not um, British colonies, basically Mm. Um, the folk horror, the the folk practices and folk traditions tend to be the things that empower the protagonists to fight against the things that they're afraid of. So the source of the horror is some kind of supernatural force or supernatural creature or something and all the folk traditions are the things that fortify them and give them the knowledge and the strength and the traditional power to keep those scary things at bay. Mm. Whereas in British folklore and in the kinds of folklore that moved to the U.S. from the from Britain yeah. and to Australia from Britain, the horror is the people who believe those things. Uh, you know? Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I get you. So it's not the monsters. It's not the ghosts. It's, it's not whatever. It's like the people who believe in those old practices. They are the source of the horror. And so it's like these two totally different types of folk horror. And it's like okay, you can see why people consider folk horror to be British because if you look at something like Adam Scoville's folk horror chain and a lot of the theories about folk horror, it is very much focused on like the villagers, the isolated village and some stranger going into that village and uh, discovering that they're going to be part of this pagan sacrifice or something, you know, that the villagers have these like weird old beliefs and the city person or whatever wanders into this community and uh, discovers this horrible situation that they have to get out of. Um, And so a lot of like definitions that people had about what folk horror is, we're really based on that kind of story structure. And that yeah, is yeah, very, yeah. like, it's like a British folk story structure, you know, like that, that's one of the oldest story types in like British folk horror. Yeah. Yeah. And w- Wicker Man being an absolute textbook example, isn't it? Right. But I mean, in, in literature, in, in folk horror literature, okay, it goes okay. back like hundred years earlier, those story types. And so, it was like, wow, there actually is a dividing line. And this is why people always thought folk horror was British, is that the definition was always very much focused on like the kind of evil villagers, you know? And yet when you go in these other places around the world, the folk traditions are actually good things. They are not the scary things. They are the things that actually help you. And that also means a lot for like marginalized communities and stuff who had belief systems that other people are are trying to suppress, you know? So depending on what the viewpoint of the protagonist is, it changes what is the source of the horror, Mm. you know? Do you know, in a way you've, I, I, I wrote a, I wrote a, a screenplay based in Norway and essentially what you're describing was one of the biggest story challenges I had, which is trying to get me head around the fact that the folk horror I was tapping into wasn't the bad guy. It, yeah. And that was, and it's interesting, just, you just read what you've just told me now, because I went through a year or so of fighting this, because obviously I'm coming at it from a, you know, just instinctively from a British point of view. I don't think I've been brainwashed, but 
you kind of are used <laughs> to a storytelling tradition that yeah. you go out you go outside and once you venture beyond the beyond the city limits and you end up in the places where the the ground gets muddier that there's things to yeah. fear and yeah. they're out to get you because you I don't know what it is you think you've got they want to take but you know but it is that yeah. that sort of thing that's that's really interesting I, I mean I genuinely went through that that kind of understanding <laughs> myself I, I didn't I didn't I never thought, thought about it in such logical terms but certainly did yeah yeah now um I did speak to I, I messaged uh, D- David to say I was speaking to you and I said what would be a good question to ask you and uh, two things he said two of the things he gave me one of them was how the pandemic helped the festival distribution of the film. Oh, well, (laughs) I don't think there would have been much festival distribution for the film if it wasn't for the pandemic. I think that um, the fact that everybody switched to online festivals, Mm. you know, meant that because normally when you have an in-person festival, they're paying for the theater. The festival is paying for the venue and the venue rentals are based on time slots. So every time slot is like two hours and then you got to pay again for the next time slot. So if my film had been playing at an in-person festival, they would have had to pay two venue rentals just to play my one movie. Mm. And that is a real deterrent to a programmer. They're like, well, we could get a whole other movie in there if we didn't yeah, play this yeah, movie, okay. you know? And so the fact that it was online meant that people didn't give a shit how long it was. Amazing. It's been 10 hours long and they could have still programmed it, you know, because they're like, they don't have any venue expenses. So that kid was not part of the, they didn't have to think about that. But it's something that programmers have to think about even with short films. It sounds like the big version of um, keep it under 10 minutes if it's a short film sort, sort of thing, you know, because yeah. it's yeah. easy to program nine, 10 minute shorts yeah. than it is to try and get 30 minute shorts in. Right. Yeah. So you know that if you program a 30 minute short, you're sacrificing all these other films you can play. And so it was sort of like that, where I felt like the pandemic um, gave it a festival visibility. It just wouldn't have had otherwise. And his other question is, are you done with folk horror or is there more to explore? (laughs) I don't even know if I'm allowed to answer that question. I will just say, no, I'm not done. Brilliant. We're going to do five great folk horror films that featured in Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. And just to remind people, uh, the format is Kayla's giving me five films. We're going to go through each one. We're going to talk for five minutes about each one. And when the alarm goes off, we're going to move on to the next one. So when you hear... That is when it adds a little bit of jeopardy, Kayla. So you know, to the uh, to the chat. Um, sometimes it feels like it takes forever. Sometimes it just goes like that. I don't know. You tell me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, moving on, and, uh, and God, I'm going to butcher some of these names. Hopefully, not too bad in terms of um, in terms of pronunciation. Uh, first out the bat is 1963's Il Dominio. <laughs> Il Demonio. Demonio. Okay, there we go. I've I've pronounced demon myself now, can I? Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Yes. So I'm just supposed to talk about this film. Tell me, tell me why tell me why it's interesting and when what why you why you chose it for the film or what or what where it fits in the film, if you want. I mean by all means, okay. I'll. So. I mean, like it's it's, uh, it's it's one of the films that we released on Severin on the box set we did at Severin, the um, all the haunts of the hours, which is like a big like twenty film box set of folk horror films, and it to me it was like uh, you know one of the big I don't want to say discoveries because I had heard of it long before I saw mm. it, you know, um, 
but it's uh, when I started doing my folklore research, it came up and I was just like, oh yeah, it's like this film. I have heard about this film forever. I've seen it from it forever, but had never actually watched it. And, um, and uh, so, you know, so beautiful film about, um, you know, it's like a story of obsessive love that's set in Southern Italy. Um, it's like in this like Southern Italy where um, Christianity has integrated a lot of the older superstitious beliefs. So there's this, there's this really weird tentative relationship between, you know, what is obviously a very uh, Catholic town, mm. but with all these old uh, kind of root traditions and, you know, nature, nature magic and stuff like this, you know, yeah. and Dahlia Lavi is the main plays the main character, this character named Kurif. And Dahlia Lavi is best known to core fans uh, because she played the lead in uh, Mario Bava's film, The Whip and the Body. Okay. And so in this film, she plays a woman who, um, you know, I guess some people in the, some people have viewed her character as being like slightly simple. Some people have viewed her character as being like potentially autistic. Um, but in the case of this movie, it's like she, she has like a lover played by Frank Wolf. Uh, who is deciding that he's getting married, but he's getting married to a more prominent woman in the town, a more respected woman than Kurif, who is a bit more like feral. And she's very like, uh, she has a lot of sexual energy, you know, and she's, um, she's like a wild woman in a way, you know? Mm. And, uh, and so he's getting married to this more respect, respectable woman. And so Kurif just kind of like loses herself in obsession for this guy. And the town, because of the types of beliefs they have, they interpret a lot of her behavior as though she's uh, demonically possessed. Mm. And so they feel that she's possessed because she's exhibiting like hysterical behavior. Um, and, you know, so they, they kind of turn against her. Well, they do. They turn against her with physical and even sexual violence. And, um, you know, some of the examples of like some of the, uh, you know, hysterical behavior is she does this spider walk and this is a spider walk, you know, where she's like doing the backwards spider walk and the actress, Elia Labby. The classic ex like an exorcism trope, isn't it now? In it. Yes. But that, and that is, I remember when, when I first saw the film, I was like, oh, wow, this predates the exorcist. And a lot of other people online are like, wow, this predates the exorcist by 10 years. Uh, but I think, um, you know, as I think Kat Ellinger pointed out, she did a commentary for the film on our disc. And I think she was the one who pointed it out to me that, you know, she's like, actually, I don't think Exorcist is, is inspired by Il Demonio. I don't know if William Friedkin would have seen this movie, but they're both inspired by the same literary sources, right? Which is that there was, there was an ethnographer named Ernesto Di Martino who went around Italy documenting old folk traditions. And this was a very, very common manifestation of so-called possession okay. in southern italy the spider walk and so there is a, actually a lot of documentation about this behavior and so that is imagery that is associated with demonic possession so she's just like you know i don't think friedkin got his example from this movie necessarily i think it's just that as he was doing all kinds of research into possession that would have come up as an image you know so you, you say you um, say that this is a thing common to italy not that it was in li italian literature or literature folk literature generally. Itali well italian i meant literature in terms of like anthropological literature not like narrative literature okay yeah so it's like folkloric studies and it was yeah ernesto de martino was an anthropologist wow, amazing. So this, these were like his studies and this is like mid-century you know so i think he died in the in the around the time this movie was made actually. Hmm. Um, and so his studies would have been, uh, you know, mid century of the last century. Are we, oh, do we have the bark already? There we go. There's the first, the first alarm. The only, the only other thing I wanted to point out about that movie that I didn't discover until, um, because Il Demonio is actually also in the new edition of my house of psychotic women. Book. Okay. Okay. So it kind of fit both things that I was working on. And, one of the things that came up as I was doing my House of Psychotic Women book is actually that her character is also very similar to a character she plays in a movie two years earlier. Uh, this uh, Michelle Boisron made a movie called One Night at the Beach, and Dahlia Lavi, like a lot of her 
her character, but her mannerisms, all kinds of stuff is actually, she's already working it out in this earlier movie, like two mm. years before. Um, and so that was an, a really interesting thing to discover too. I should I should have said at the start I haven't seen any of these five films and that's what's blown my oh, mind. Oh really? No, no, no. And this is and the next one is the one that I, I'm going to be hunting out first in terms yeah. of in Eye of the Devil from 1966 starring David Niven because the very fact it starred David Niven I'm like why don't why don't I know about this film at all? Um so yeah. do you want to where does this fit into? I mean obviously being it's set in a French vineyard but obviously got a British influence. No. So where does it fit in that? Sort of divide yeah. you were talking about in terms of where, what what British, what folk folklore and folk horror is. Well, it's interesting because um, the fact that it's in the French village, it's 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 interesting because you don't actually see the villagers at all. The villagers do not really play a role in the film at all. I mean, okay. it's, it's you know it's described as a proto Wicker Man film. Like a lot of people describe it that way because it's you know 1966 and it's before the wicker man and it's also before the book that the wicker man was based on. Um, eye of the devil is based on a book, um, by, uh, suspense writer, Robin Estridge, who used the name of Philippe Lorraine to write it. Um, and I think the novel came out in like 1964. Um, and it's very, you know, it's David Niven plays a guy who is, um, from an aristocratic family in France. And he's summoned back to the family estate, which is this massive chateau, uh, because the vineyards are failing. And so there's some sort of occult rituals and some sacrifice that everything is building up to that has to be done to save the vineyards from failing. So obviously it's like it's what the you know, what the aristocratic feudal lord of this land, it's what he's required to do to keep the villagers sustained, but mm. you never actually meet the villagers. It's all set in this very, uh, like the aristocratic bubble of the Chateau and the weird people who like live and work at the Chateau. So it's like, he goes back there and Deborah Kerr is like his wife or his fiance. Maybe she's his wife because they have children. She follows him out there. She's like, you know, he's like, I need to go back to the castle and, she follows him even though he tells her not to and brings the, I can't remember if she brings the children. She does bring the children. Of course she does. There's amazing scenes with the children. And she goes out there and she's like, Philippe, what is happening? You're so behaving so unlike yourself, you know? And she's like, he's like, you must leave. You must not be here, you know? And <laughs> it's very dramatic. And, um, you know, and she's trying to discover like, what is the secret of the, the castle? And like, who are the weird people? Because like, um, David Hemmings and and Sharon Tate are in the film and Sharon Tate is like, it's billed as introducing her. It's billed as her first film, but there's like another film called don't make waves that also bills her as it being her first film. So I think one was made first and one was released first. And so they both like fought over which one of yeah, them gets to claim yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so anyway, so she, her and David Hemmings in the movie, they play brother and sister. They're not brother and sister in the book. Um, they're not related in the book. And, uh, but their brother and sister in the movie, which is a big part of what lends the film its sexual deviance. There's this real, like, underlying theme of sexual deviance in this whole chateau. And, and their relationship, Darren, David Hemmings and Sharon Tate are playing very weird characters. And that's a big part of, like, creating that, that energy. Um, but it's, yeah, it's very much, you know, films like Robin Redbreast and Eye of the Devil have been cited, I think, the, the most often as like proto Wicker Man movies, you know, that are mm. dealing with it. Um, the idea of like the harvest failing and, you know, a sacrifice has to be made for the harvest, you know. Um, but yeah, so it is that type of film and it's made by Jay Lee Thompson, who would, you know, he was a British director, but he was known, I think before the, before this, he had made the guns of Navarone and, um, Cape fear. Yeah. And then my, my generation being the age I am, I mostly know him as the director of happy birthday to me, which is like Canadian slasher film. Um, but I of the devil of everything of his, I have seen I of the devil is my favorite by far. I love this film. It's amazing. Like we would have totally included it in our folk horror box set, except it's like an MGM film and we're not big enough 
for like the studios to really deal with us that much. But and this was a proper yeah. like X certificate, wasn't it, when it was released? Like is in I don't know. I mean, yeah. like maybe in the UK. I don't think this was an X-rated movie. In the no, US. no. I mean, but in in the horror terms, in '66, it's like it's yeah. that it's that um, you know. It wasn't. It wasn't that long before we were still. You know, our government was still. The British government was still reading theatre plays. Whether you could put a theatre on, yeah. a theatre production on. Oh, there we go. You almost. You almost instinctively knew the five minutes there. <laughs> right then, moving into the seventies, and uh, we're going to be following a wandering ballad singer in uh, the Appalachians for the legend of Hillbilly John. Yes, although it's it's actually pronounced Appalachia even though everybody in my movie pronounces it wrong. Um, so what, you drop the N? Or you drop the N or the N isn't there? Interviewees who lives in Appalachia, he's still in the movie, he says Appalachia, and <laughs> it's Appalachia. So Appalachia, but if, if it's Appalachians, if you meet them. Yeah. But so, yeah, The Legend of Hillbilly John from 1974 was also, um, it was originally titled Who Fears the Devil, which is the title of both a longer original cut of the film, but also the name of one of the stories. Like it's based on the stories of, of the author Manly Wade Wellman. Mm. Um, so he had, uh, you know, he was like, like a fantasy and horror writer and his, um, his, one of his biggest successes, you know, was creating this character named John. I think he just called him John, but then other critics and historians came to call him, Silver John or John the Balladeer. Um, and so he wrote many stories of, you know, about this character, Silver John, who is a, like a wandering uh, Appalachian uh, balladeer, you know? Mm. And one of those stories is called Who Fears the Devil, which is why that's what the movie was called. And okay. also in my, in my documentary, there's the American chapter of the documentary is called uh, Call Me From the Valley. And that is also the name of a Silver John book. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, like Manly Wade Wellman wrote these stories where, I mean, he got very interested in Appalachian folklore and spiritualities. And also there was a, there was a folk musician. Um, and it's again, mid century of the last century. There was a folk musician, Aubrey Ramsey. That's his name, Obi Ramsey. So um, uh, Manly Wade Wellman met him and become, became very fascinated with this folk singer. And I have a feeling that a lot of Silver John's personality and, and the idea of him being a folk singer was inspired by Manly Wade Wellman meeting this uh, this folk singer. Okay. And um, and so he, yeah, he was just he was really interested in the folklore of this region. And it's, it's one of the richest regions for folklore in the U.S. because um, there are a lot of old traditions that still survive there that are still really strong. And there's a lot of old beliefs that are still practiced there. And they have kind of like a big folklore center in Appalachia. There's oh, really? Like a university, there's a university that has like, the, you know, the biggest uh, folklore, um, like archive and, and folklore studies center and stuff like Amazing. in the U.S., so it's very, very strong. Like a lot of people who come from Appalachia, like academics and stuff like that, uh, this will become something that they champion and, and an area that they focus on partially because Appalachia is still a very misunderstood region, mm. you know, around the U.S. So I think there's a lot of people like when they come from that area and they are scholars or writers or whatever, they often are trying to do right by Appalachia because they feel like it's been wrong by a lot of the rest of the country who think it's just full of like backwoods hicks and stuff like who are going to kill you or shoot you if you go on their property and blah 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 you know and we address we address some of these um stereotypes yeah, yeah i mean i'm going to say this film's a great example of, of of what you were discussing before about the need to sort of move geographically when you talk about american folk horror yeah because appalachia yeah. versus you know the, the the southern states they're not they're, they're not the same country are they in yeah yeah, although there's definitely crossover because there was like um, people who uh, people who you know a century or two later, like after people started settling in Appalachia, there was definitely people who 
move from the South because the South was very depressed, you know, and there was, and, and also like, like slaves, like after the slaves were emancipated, a lot of people moved into Appalachia. So it's also a really interesting place in terms of mixing of cultures. And so the folk magic there is also in some ways very influenced by Southern, like African-American stuff too. There's a lot of that kind of integrated into the Appalachian folk magic. Mm. So it's just a fascinating area. Um, And so the legend of Hillbilly John is a comparatively silly movie compared to what the way I've just been speaking about Appalachia. <laughs> it's, it's pretty, it's pretty silly movie, but it's full of great music. The guy who plays, oh, the guy who plays Silver John is played by a folk musician named Hedges Capers. Um, and so he does all the music and, you know, does the songs in the movie and stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping that in the future people will be hearing some more about Billy John. That's all I will say. Okay. Well, look for fear of ending up, our Brazilian friends. I won't even. I won't try to pronounce this next title. Do you want to? Do you want to give us what the next title is, please? Yeah. So the next title is "As Feel Has to Fogo" okay. from 1978. I don't know that I'm pronouncing it correctly either, but I've had to say it many times, so I just probably have more practice than you. So yeah. No, it was more. It was more the Phileas bit, and it, yeah, it feels yeah. a bit right based on my knowledge of Brazilian footballers that I know in that play in Britain. So that. It feels it feels right. So, a, a woman living in Sao Paulo um, is is at the centre of the story. What 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 is it about this? That what, what does this tell us about folk horror from a, from a yeah. South American or a specifically Brazilian point of view? Yeah. So she she she's the the main protagonist in the film are from Sao Paulo, but they don't. Uh, the film doesn't take place there. It's just kind of like a you know, a girl goes back to her family home in the country and brings her friend from the city with her. So the two of them go back to this country home, which is in the Southern part of Brazil. Mm. And, um, the, the main thing about the, the main thing I love about this film, and I really wish it could be remastered and stuff, you know, uh, we have been trying and trying, you know, but, um, it documents the, uh, you know, it's, it's just interesting in regards to folk horror because it like specifically conjures the Germanic traditions that uh, were imported to Southern Brazil in the 19th century. So there was like a huge movement of German people to this region of Brazil. And so if you go to Southern Brazil, you'll come across towns that look like Alpine towns. Like they look (laughs) like German towns, you know, like, and they have German Germanic, festivals you know like a bratwurst festival or whatever you know so i mean this isn't brazilian in the way that a lot of people think of brazilian where they're thinking much more of like afro-brazilian or indigenous brazilian i mean these this is imported Mm. uh germanic people i mean like and there's such a big german population there that was why like after world war ii people started hunting nazis in brazil you know because there was you know, in South America, there was a huge German population. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so that's where all the Nazi war criminals would, would be sought, you know, was like in Brazil and stuff. But, and so this film deals a lot with like the girl goes there and she's telling her friend the history of this place. Like, yes, my great, great grandfather came here and he, he had a really hard time trying to, you know, just like raise the area and like get rid of the beliefs like the local beliefs you know so that he could bring the proper german beliefs here and stuff you know and so it's all kind of building up to this like german harvest festival and uh um and it's interesting because there are these photographs all throughout the movie they show that are supposed to be pictures Mm. of the german harvest festival in the past but all the photos are actually Diane Arbus photos. So like Diane Arbus, the American photographer, clearly used without permission right, <laughs> in okay. this movie. Somebody used some, I didn't even catch it. Somebody else uh, told me, they were like, oh no, th- those are Diane Arbus pictures because I posted one of them on my Instagram. Mm. And so then I looked it up and it's like, yeah, they're all from some Diane Arbus photo book that came out in the 70s. And, uh, and so they use these pictures in the movie as though they are the documentation of like this old German harvest festival, which is really interesting, but it also has a lot of, um, uh, it ha- it has a, a investigation into like electronic voice phenomena and like what we would call like stone tape theory and stuff, you oh, know? Wow. So there's this mix of 
kind of electronic voice phenomena and like what was known as cardicist spiritism, which I, which became very popular in, uh, it's named after this uh, French scholar named Alain Kardec. And it became very popular in the middle of the 19th century in Brazil hmm. and became one of the dominant belief systems, cardicist spiritism. Jesus, and really? So there's, so, so there's a lot of this in the film. And at some point I had, because they're dealing with like recordings, you know, from the past and stuff. I, I, at one point in the documentary, I had Asphilas de Fogo, the stone tape and Kupi Avati's film Zedder actually all edited together into a sequence because mm. I was trying to show the way that they each use like technology and stuff like this. Um, and that ended up getting cut out of the movie. Um, but so, so I just found this movie interesting because it's touching on so many interesting things. It's like got this very regional specificity to it, but it's also dealing with immigration and it's also dealing with like belief systems that are being imported around the world. You know, like it's just, yeah, fascinating film. And then one of the actresses in it is this woman, Paolo Mora, who would be known more to like Severin Films fans. She's in like images from a convent or images in a convent and, uh, and uh, killer nun. So she's like in like two nunsploitation movies. Um, and so at the time this movie was made, she was, she had been like Italian playboy and stuff. So she's like an Italian actress uh, in this. Brazilian is this, is this film. a film? Is this a film that you discovered while making the documentary? Or is this a film you knew about when you went into making it? I knew about it before because I was actually um, researching Brazilian genre films for something else. Okay. And so whenever I came across something that kind of was folk horror um, I can't remember if I was working on folk horror at the same time, if I started working on folk horror later, but, um, but either way I was, I, I found this film before I was working on the folk horror thing and I sort of recalled mm. it and was like, Oh yeah, that movie can go in there, you know? Cool. Well, look, final, final throw of the dice is we're jumping into the 90s now with, yeah. I mean, this, this, I'm feeling, I, I don't know this one either. So Clear Cut from 1991. Um, mm. And this is a, this is about, um, so, uh, is this American or Canadian film? Canadian. Canadians. This is about indigenous Canadians, isn't it? Is this what this touches on? Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a movie that's about this like white lawyer who is defending, um, and I don't know if he's just been assigned to defend or he's volunteered to defend. I don't know that anybody has asked him to defend them, but like he's defending an indigenous community that is fighting against loggers that are cutting down trees on their territory, you mm. know? Um, and this is an ongoing problem in Canada where, you know, there there's just treaty after treaty that just gets broken and ignored by developers whenever they need to, you know, it's like, there is sovereign indigenous land all over Canada. There's also a lot of unceded land, like land where there was never a treaty. Like no, where I live, white people are not supposed to be living here. You know, like it was never British Columbia, the West Coast, there was never any treaty that allowed white people to live here. So it's not even the case of a broken treaty. It's actually the case of like full on just invasion into yeah, yeah, yeah. indigenous territory without caring, you know? And so these issues are, are just big issues all across Canada, you know, where it's like you're dealing with shitty things that people did uh, centuries ago, but they are still not only is there not uh, reparations for it, but it's like they're keeping more, more injuries to the, you know, to what little land the indigenous people have in Canada. And there's still people who are like trying to sell a pipeline project that goes through the indigenous land or whatever. In the case of clear cut, um, it came out a year after very close on the heels of what was in Canada called the Oka crisis mm. or the Kanesatake resistance. And so this was like a 78 day standoff in, um, in 1990, it was like from summer to fall of 1990. So it was a 78-day standoff between Mohawk protesters, uh, Quebec police, the RCMP, which is like the um, the uh, federal police, yeah. and the Canadian Army. So it was like a standoff um, because there was a golf course that was expanding and there was developers building townhouses on disputed land in Kanesatake. Um, and in that, in that, 
uh, indigenous land, there was also a burial ground. So there's like a Mohawk burial ground. And so the developers were basically just doing whatever the hell they want. And the indigenous people, the Mohawk people in that region were just like, no, no, no more, you know? And so there was like a standoff right. and it was, uh, you know, it, it, it was a very strong image of indigenous resistance in Canada. Like the imagery of like all the indigenous people in like in, in military fatigues with like bandanas over their faces and stuff. And, you know, like there's just, I, I know somebody who's like in a famous photograph as a baby, you know, like in one of the famous photographs from this um, resistance. And uh, so it was like a real turning point in Canada where it was kind of the first time for many Canadians that they understood anything about indigenous mm. grievances, you know, because um, it got a lot of press. And so clear cut came out a year later, um, not even a year later. And it was met with, a lot of reluctance, you know, like it just, it, it didn't get played a lot. It was not really pushed. I mean, because people were, they were afraid to kind of release it. There was a lot of critical resistance to it because there's a very violent indigenous character in it. Graham Greene, who's one of the greatest Canadian actors, plays a trickster character named Arthur. And I call him a trickster because he, he does play like a trickster character. You know, he's a supernatural character right. that um, his role is, not to be a nice character. His role is to disrupt, you know, his role is to point out problems. And sometimes he can do that in a quite a disruptive and violent way. And so his character is very violent. His character's very um, rude and mean. Um, and, you know, I think there, you know, he's, he's a great character, you know, but it's like, I think there was a, a lot of worry from not only mainstream critics and left-leaning critics and stuff, but also indigenous communities at the time that they weren't sure they really wanted this rep, this depiction of like a violent indigenous activist, like so close after the OPA situation. It was just kind of like, you know, we don't want Canadians to be like afraid of us. We want uh, to be respected, yeah. you know, so we don't yeah, want to be depicted as like, uh, indiscriminately violent people, you know, which is what Arthur kind of is. He kind of revels in his violence, you know. And so it took a long time for the movie to find its audience. Uh, I would say in the last couple of years, it has it has found its audience. And not only that, it's found a lot of Indigenous champions. There actually are a lot of Indigenous critics and stuff mm. who now love this film. And Graham Greene, the actor, has said that it's his favorite role that he ever played, you know. So it's been kind of reclaimed oh, in a way, excellent. like it was just, it had bad timing when it came out, but yeah. it's a really, really fascinating film. Well, look, thank you for sharing those five films. I will repeat that Woodland's Dark and Days Bewitched is on Shudder, but you let's get a couple of things. You've you've reissued House of Psychotic Women, is that right? Yeah. So that's... Yeah, so Fab Fab Press, it's the tenth anniversary of the book this year. So yeah. Fab Press just reissued it with um there's a hundred more movies added to it, and there's also a new preface at the beginning. So it's like an expanded uh anniversary edition. Okay, well I'll put links to that in the show notes. And you also mentioned the box set. So what's the box set that Severin did on Folk Horror? They did a Severin did a box set called All the Haunts Be Ours. And it's a 20 film folk horror box set that comes with like a book. It's, it's a fantastic set and the films are from all over the place, you know? Yeah. So it's got like Serbian films and British films and, um, you know, Polish films and all kinds of stuff. So it's like, uh, a bunch of the films that people may not have seen or heard of from the documentary. Yeah. We tried to get a lot of those into this set. So, and is there, a, and is it physically available Woodlands? Yeah, you can buy a Blu-ray from Severin. You can buy it on Amazon. I I don't know whether in the UK, whether it would... I th I'm pretty sure it's an all-region desk that would be available from Severin because we have world... We produce the film, so we have world rights on it. You know? yeah, so yeah, I yeah. think like, if there's any disc you get on, on Amazon, it'll be region-free probably. Brilliant. Well, look, well, I'll put a link in the show notes to Severin's website. Um, well, it just yeah. gives me to say thank you very much for giving your time on the podcast. No problem. Thank you for having me. And, and honestly, congratulations on a film. It is an amazing piece of work. You must be very proud. Thank you. 
And and can I just add, just to complete, just to finish the fanboy session, um, Satanic Panic is a wonderful book as well that you put out, you edited on Fab Press. It's like thank you. Well, actually, I didn't put that out on Fab Press. Fab Press sublicensed it from me. I actually published that. I originally published it under my own imprint, Spectacular Optical. Okay. And then when we sold out, I don't like doing reprints because usually I just want to move on to something else. So when it sold out, I contacted Fab Press and asked that they wanted to sublicense it. So they did a new. I mean, it's exactly the same. It just says Fab Press on it. But yeah, so they just sublicensed it from me. So that was a book that Paul Korup and I put together t- together. And um, yeah, Spectacular Optical, which has been pretty dormant for a few years now. Uh, but it was a publishing imprint that I was running and did a few books through. Yeah, no, it, fa- it always feels like the Satanic Panic of North America is is the video nasties of the UK. It's like yeah. a strange folk devil phenomena that yeah. obsessed the conservative part of the nation rather too much that they came up with the most whacked out theories and your book covers it brilliantly. Well, look, I will say thank you very much now. Let you get on with your day. Uh, Much appreciated. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.